We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, and wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. First of all, it's very nice to meet you both. Your story is going to be one that's going to touch the hearts and and minds of a lot of people. So um, first of all, I want to thank you for participating. It sounds like you guys are facilitators of one of the online support groups. Yes. Yeah, right now it's online. It's probably going to be online because it's the entire state. So we can all meet in person. It's not practical for everybody to certainly drive in to the city. So yeah, it's, it's the entire state. So it's something that you guys aren't just Oklahoma City. So in order for able for everyone in the state to access your support group, that's actually probably a really good thing for y'all to be able to host it online. Yeah, yes. that's, the technology allows that, which is wonderful. Yeah. I mean, it would be nice to be able to occasionally do some group get-togethers just, you know, to connect. Uh, but, you know, that's just not feasible. It's not easy. Usually when people are in town, they're in town for treatment. So it's not real. Yeah. That doesn't work very I well. I mean, the nature of the support group is pediatric cancer. So, you know, it's either Oklahoma City at J- the Jimmy Everett Center or in Tulsa, they have one. So it's not like each you have these segmented localities where you can have these support groups for a constricted geographical area. It's the entire state. So yeah. that's why we do it that way. Yeah, technology can be used for good things, um, which is nice that we've discovered all of that in in the time of COVID. I really want this to be your story. This is about you, your journey, um, bringing awareness and education to a very real topic that not everyone understands and knows about. So as we have this discussion, you know, I think what I would love for you to do is just introduce your family, introduce why Childhood Cancer Awareness Month is part of your family. All right, so Jared and Tammy Cox, we've been married for almost 14 years, be 14 years at the, in December, so been married for a while. We have three boys, uh, the oldest is 11, the middle is eight, and the youngest is five, and they keep us hopping. Um, so our story with pediatric cancer started in May of 2019. So we were at a party at a friend's house. It was a housewarming party slash Cinco de Mayo party. And our oldest walked into the house, uh, friend's house, and was white as a sheep, complaining of stomach pain. And the other boys had been sick had, with stomach stuff. It turned out to be strep throat. So we kind of thought that's, you know, <clears throat> Occam's razor there. That was the most, you know, probably what it was. So uh, I was in the garage with the boys, um, or with the, with the guys, and Tammy called me into the house, and he was on the bathroom floor, and he was white as a sheet, and being the sympathetic guy that I am, I told him, suck it up, get over it. He's kind of a dramatic kid. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and so I uh, told him to get over it, and then as I always say, being the wonderful parents that we are, it took us two days to end up going to the hospital. So that was a Saturday night. Um, Sunday, he was at the foot of our bed all day because, you know, stomach issues and we just want to make sure we'd be there in case he threw up or whatever. He never did. And then Monday, he was in the car and every time uh, Tammy hit a bump, he complained of stomach pain. So my initial thought was appendicitis. Uh, We ended up at the hospital, uh, Baptist Hospital here in the city, and they did an ultrasound and a CAT scan. And the ultrasound came first and I almost said, 
um, when they came for the CAT scan, hey, we have ultrasound, you know, do we even need the CAT scan? And thank God I didn't say that. Um, they took him back from the CAT scan and it was kind of a weird thing. So I went back with him on the CAT scan, Tammy stayed in the room, my mother was there. And, um, you know, yeah, the first um, radiology tech, I guess, come and bring us. And usually it's the same person bring him back. And uh, looking back on it, it was a different person that brought us back. And there was kind of a vibe in the room that I didn't pick up on initially. But looking back on it, I think they saw what it was and kind of freaked out. Somebody else brought us back. It was, uh, they must have done it because it was shortly thereafter, um, the ER physician came back into our room. And you know how long it takes to read radiology reports and that kind of stuff. So that makes me think that they made some calls back there. And he came in and he said, you know, um, we're sending you to Children's Hospital. The, the CAT scan, the ultrasound was clear, didn't show anything, but the CAT scan showed fluid on his left kidney. Um, his white blood cell was high. He has a low-grade fever. This looks like an infection of some sort. However, I just want to let you know that the radiology report said tumor. And of course, so, and he said tumor and he said kidney, and that's really all I remember hearing. Yeah, I don't remember him saying cancer at that point. He, he, I think he was very cautious not to say cancer. Um, and he looked scared and timid in speaking with us. And when he said that, um, I asked if he knew a specific doctor um, that, we're, that we're friends with. And he said, he's yes, a, I do. Do you want me to call him? We have a friend there. He's a urologist there. And so Timmy said, do you know our doctor friend? He said, yes. And our doctor friend was there within 10 minutes, uh, standing in front of us, uh, telling us that our son had cancer. And so that was kind of the introduction. The, we, we found out later the ER physician, you know, at that point went back to the office area and cried. Um, so it was a profound moment and as a parent, I mean, you're sitting there, I, I don't know what it was like for Tammy, but for me, I mean, cancer can mean a lot of different things. You don't know what it means. So like my father had recently gotten skin cancer removed, you know, it's, it's that kind of stuff. It's a simple procedure, or it could be the loss of your child after a prolonged, um, time of suffering and watching your child waste away. And so that was my first thoughts that I remember is okay, I know it's cancer, but what does that mean? Yeah, what, what Tammy, does that mean? And yeah. Tammy's family has a little bit different history in that she had so, a cousin. Yeah, so my frame of reference with cancer, is, uh, pediatric cancer is death. And so when Jared wasn't there whenever the doctor, <clears throat> our doctor friend um, showed up and he walked in and he hugged me and he said, I'm sorry that you're here. He said, this is cancer. And I, Jared's mom was standing next to me. And I just, I, I can't remember if at that moment or soon thereafter, I just kind of sunk to the floor because immediately I got sick to my stomach. Yeah. And um, Jared was not with me because he was laying down with our son after hearing the word tumor. He he yeah, had to go. All the, all the blood rushes from your head and your are <clears> straight. <throat> and at that point, you know, just need to yeah, lay so, down to recover, but then also just to be near my son. Um, but back to that, that's my frame of reference. My cousin um, was diagnosed with cancer when she was 12 or 13 and battled it until she was 20 when it ultimately took her life. And so I, 
and we were dealing with um, some adult friends who had cancer and were not doing well with it and had uh, relapsed. So, and pretty much all the people in my life that I had lost and loved had died to cancer. So that was, that was where it started. However, our friend immediately followed up with, it is most likely Wilms tumor and it is very treatable. And so you just have all these things going in your head. Um, and I, for whatever reason, immediately decided I'm, um, I'm not going to panic until I have to panic. And so um, that's what I did. I just maintained until we finally got pathology back. Um, that was weeks later. So at that point, they loaded us up into an ambulance. So at that point, shortly thereafter, they loaded us up into an ambulance. So we went to Children's Hospital. And I think a few calls had been made, a few favors called in because we had the Calvary there nurses and doctors and attendees. And I mean, I don't know, it was a bunch of people. Well, our, the pediatric urologist showed up in yeah. street clothes, thanks to the favor of a friend. Yeah. And so they immediately brought us, well, we were in ambulance, so they immediately, immediately brought us back. And then um, shortly after they took us into the parents into the waiting room and talked and there's a fellow there and uh, he was in his fellowship and you know, kind of laid it out. Blaze was a little bit older for Wilms tumor. That's the thing that they didn't really know what to do with because he was too old for Wilms tumor. It's I don't very, think we've said his name. His name is Blaze. Oh, yeah, Blaze is the oldest. Um, he uh, he's a little too old for it, um, so that had him concerned. And then also, it generally doesn't rupture into the kidney. So the tumor had ruptured into the kidney, released a bunch of blood, and that and it stayed in the the renal sac there, and that was what's causing the pain was that discharge of fluid. So, I mean, thank God it happened because it was an early indication that something was wrong there. If not, the tumor had grown and grown and grown and grown and grown. So it turns out um, it's about the size of my fist, about 10 centimeters. So it's about the size of my fist tumor. They didn't know what they were going to do because they hadn't seen one rupture before. And so that we got there on a Monday. Um, they wanted to, they ended up waiting until the bleeding had stopped. So they waited until Thursday for surgery. And... At that point, it was going to kind of be open them up and see what we're going to do. Uh, we're either going to open them up and it's too messy. We're going to close them back up and then we'll do chemotherapy and um, shrink the tumor size and then come back in for surgery later. Or we're going to go in and we're going to remove this uh, kid the tumor and the kidney and sum back up and then we'll start chemotherapy after. And the we urologist asked, said, if it's a long surgery, yeah. it's a good thing. You want it to be a long so surgery. So we asked how long and they said, you know, four hours and it ended up being nine hours yeah, close to nine and so we're in the waiting room and, uh, and they would call uh, the nurse would call and, and kind of ask status and he's comfortable and that's all she really knew so it was nine hours of sitting there in the waiting room <clears throat> kind of it's the first time that we had been away from him you know we were by his side this entire time and so it was the first time to kind of sit there and process kind of some of that stuff luckily we had a bunch of friends to show up and kind of distract us from the the agony that we were otherwise going through family was there and it was a long surgery, and then after that, it was two or two and a half weeks until we had pathology. Well, uh, to interject, at the end of the surgery, we had kind of, we tapped out, so we sent everybody 
away from us. They were still there, but we couldn't do it anymore. We couldn't maintain anymore. So we sent everybody away. And um, Jared and I sat in the waiting room and the urologist walked out. I saw him walking Well, this down. is after all the doors had shut too. Like we've been there so long, they were shutting doors and yeah. locking stuff up and kind of, we were just Yeah, I mean, it was like, it was eight or nine o'clock at night. We're so, locked in so um, anyway, I was able to see um, through the glass on the door, I, I saw the urologist come out of the operating room and he gave me a big smile and a thumbs up. And when we saw that, we lost it. But it turns yeah. out, again, I think there was a favor called in. They had <clears throat> three attendees and a couple of residents in there. And that he had, he had, you know, the best doctors in the state in there, three of them. It was at least three of them in there right. doing the surgery. And they were just being methodical and taking their time. And I, I don't know, like, they, it, we, we didn't know that was going on. But, <clears throat> I mean, thank God that happened. Incredibly blessed to have such a supportive medical team that helped guide us through that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if that's normal or if, I mean, definitely I know we, we got some help, but um, they were fantastic and they just wanted to be really careful about getting it out and not rupturing the renal sac because the tumor out. then it would have um, staged him up. He was stage two, Wilms tumor stage two um, favorable histology yep. is his official diagnosis. And so they were able to get his tumor and kidney out without rupturing the renal sac. And um, so his, he was stage two because the tumor had ruptured. That's the only reason he was stage two. Yeah. So thank God. Again. Before that, I mean, so going into surgery, our, who ended up being our um, attending physician, a wonderful woman, she would not, she was very circumspect in the prognosis. So she would say it's, you know, everybody was kind of telling us mom's tumor, they kept popping up in conversation, but she said it was really three cancers that they were concerned about. And I can't tell you the names now. One of them was Wilms. Um, one of them was another one that was bad, but treatable. And then the other one was a matter of, uh, not a matter of if it would come back, but when it would come back. Mm -hmm. And so I remember as a written for pathology report saying, like, I never thought as a parent, I'd be sitting here praying for a certain type of cancer for my son to have. Yeah. But that is the state that we're in is praying, you know, praying for the good cancer, praying for the good cancer, which is a very, and never thought we'd be so thrilled that they were able to take an organ out of our child. Yeah. After nine hours surgery. Yeah. So, um, and then when the um, oncologist called with pathology uh, about two weeks, two, two, two and a half weeks I don't know. later. Um, I remember she told me what it was. She said it was Wilms and I just said, oh, thank God. And she was like, really? <laughs> You're yeah. okay? And I was like, I'm, yes, Doing I'm so glad. Yeah. I'm so glad that's what it is. But before that, I mean, like we had all these kind of questions about, you know, what ifs, what ifs, what ifs. And our um, attending physician said, whatever happens, there will be a plan. And so that's, you know, what we had going into surgery is, you know, or as the differential diagnosis that could possibly happen, um, there was a plan. So that was all the more reassurance that we had at that point. 
Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the timeline then. So you guys were taken from, from Baptist and I, and I like to say the Baptist because that's where y'all were initially. And then you were transported to OU Children's. And then at this point, was it a couple of days before they did that, that kidney surgery or that surgery to remove it? So he had um, the tumor ruptured on May 4th, Saturday, May 4th. We took him to the hospital Monday, May 6th. He had surgery um, Thursday, May 9th. And then okay. we're out the next Monday. So he's in there 13th. from Monday to Monday. Um, so his, um, his official diagnosis date is May 9th. Um, when they actually saw the tumor and, and his, um, but pathology didn't come back until May 15th. Uh, but his diagnosis date is May 9th and his remission date is May 9th. Oh, wow. So So because they were able to remove the tumor at that time, that's the date of remission. He didn't have any active cancer in them. Now we still had to do chemotherapy to be sure, to be sure. But, um, that is, I mean, whatever definitions are worth, that was the remission date. That, that, that is, I mean, yeah, when you're sitting there talking about the good and the bad cancers, and I'm praying for a good cancer, <laughs> then I guess that's the best kind of cancer to be able to be diagnosed with and then go into remission within the same day. So yeah, I mean, remission doesn't mean a whole lot when you have the marathon ahead of you with chemotherapy and all that. So I mean, it's, it's, it's nice. It's comforting. It's, it's more interesting to me now. Yeah. It's it. I mean, yes. it's it. Well, and that's, I was gonna say, and that's exactly what I want you to talk us through is because um, now you're facing a whole new world of chemotherapy and what then he went home within that week to be able to, after his surgical or his surgery. And then now were y'all readmitted at a later date for like ports and stuff like that? Or did y'all have that kind of stuff? Just educate me. And I, I'm, I'm trying not to ask dumb questions. So please forgive me for, for there's all like, we, you don't know anything until you have to walk it. So it's a, it's a huge education. They did her. his port when he was in surgery for his kidney. So that was the first thing they did. It was his port. And then um, we didn't know if it was going to be stage two or stage three. So we had a, a consultation at the radiology oncology place. So I remember going there and that was very, that was a very surreal experience because he'd just come out of surgery or come out of surgery. It'd been several days after surgery. It was before he started chemotherapy though. And so we were carrying him around in a wagon. And I remember, I haven't talked to Tammy about this, but I remember, you know, it's a, it's a fairly elderly population. And so you're carrying your son through, and he's nine years old at the time, or carrying him through there. And I remember an elderly lady and bald, and she had the scarf on, and she looked at him, and she said, we got this. And she walked on down the hall. And then we had to go, or we didn't have to, but they took us back to where they have toys, have a uh, closet there. And as you, you have to walk past the waiting room. And seeing the looks of everybody's faces when they saw him, and it was like the first time in my life that, I mean, here are people that are fighting this and then they see him and so they know firsthand what he's going through and the looks on their faces it was like the first time in my life that i can safely say that i had strangers praying for me you could just see it on their faces and you could see how disgusted they were with you know they were fighting this thing and then to see a child come in fighting the same thing you could just see how disgusted and empathetic they were at the same time it was all over their faces and so we had our consultation it turns out it was stage two he didn't need um radiology treatment, just chemotherapy, but that's a vivid memory for me that I'll take over. No, I didn't, 
I, now that you say that, I, re, I think I remember somebody saying something and you learn um, as you go through treatment and you make friends that um, you know, the people who have the worst case scenario do not ever want you to have the worst case scenario. And they do not bemoan that your child has lived and theirs has not. And they, they're as heartbroken over the potential for your child um, as they are for their own. And so it is a real community that you have. And um, our friend, uh, we had a friend who uh, was dealing with a relapse whenever we found out that Blaze had cancer. And, a adult friend. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and um, I said we need to call her, and then I found out um, that she was on a plane going to a beach vacation somewhere, and I said, don't call her. She'll, she'll stop. She'll get off the plane, and um, she, I texted her when I knew she was coming home. She said, I'm, what's wrong? I'm calling you as soon as I get off the plane. Called me at like midnight. And we were still at the hospital and I told her and she was devastated for us and um, took Blaze under her wing and took him out, let him know that he wasn't doing it alone. And she ended up um, helping us throw a head, head shaving party for him. So um, she she paid for his head shaving so, party. I mean, she, she was a friend of ours who was going through treatment at the same time. And then Blaze's godfather was going through treatment at the same time also for cancer colon cancer he ended up succumbing to it um so i mean just a lot of overlap there in, in different stories that were going on at the same time and then uh we had another friend who was diagnosed right before right around the time blaze was with pancreatic cancer young in his 30s Arch, uh, yeah. and so we just kind of walked alongside everybody was fighting this fight in parallel together yeah. Uh, at the same time, so it's kind of a, a terrible time. It's kind of surreal in that in that aspect. You really gain, um, you lose a lot, and you really gain some amazing relationships that you never would have expected. So then, going on with the <clears throat> the story, so we had that consult. We didn't need it. Um, he never did inpatient chemotherapy. His was outpatient. So um, again, the the good easy cancer. Air quotes. Um, his chemo was lasted a total, the long one was what, 30 minutes, maybe? Uh, yeah, 30 minutes or so. But so my, I, I took the week off when he was in the hospital. I went back to work, uh, a friend of mine at work, um, unbeknownst to me, well, he, he's texting me like, does Blaze have a gaming system? Does he have this and that? Um, my work colleagues, uh, put their money together. They got him a switch and several games and, for us, that was, or for him, really, that was kind of the salvation. So he, of course, he's a kid. He doesn't like the needles. And that was the probably the biggest fight, even today, because we still have to go back for scans and some of those require IVs. That's the biggest fight that we have with him is getting those needle sticks. But as long as he had that switch and could play and distract himself, he did a lot better, like, when they access to support. And and so that was another, like Tammy said, the, the good with the bad. Like, here, here are these four colleagues of mine that, you know, are, are reaching out, providing us a switch that provides us salvation in those moments that we need it. Yeah. And they have no clue what that has done for, for him, for us, because you learn that kids need to be 
they can't just refocus. They have to have a distraction and a relief when things are going horribly. So that provided that distraction. And that's what he's currently doing. You're right. And, and you're absolutely right. The, the distraction um, from almost that reality that he was having to live uh, was probably very necessary in, in his survival at that moment. So talk to me a little bit about that compliance. Um, I mean, here he is a nine-year-old kid that you're right, doesn't like needles, doesn't like any of that. Um, talk a little bit about how was that easy? Was that hard? Was that something that he was like, okay, I understand I need to do this and I'm just going to do it. Or were there some battles that y'all fought? Well, it was a constant battle. So he'd go every week. Every Monday was our treatment day. Um, we did the lidocaine cream, which, you know, we used the press and silly, could have press and silly, put the lidocaine cream uh, on his port and then on his elbows, the, where they draw blood. That's how it started out. But it was a fight every time we ended up, um, and then, so they do labs before that I was talking about in the elbow. Um, we ended up um, just doing finger pokes. They were able to draw enough blood of finger pokes. So that was one thing that they gave us control of to say, hey, can we just cut out one needle stick and that helped. But it was a fight. Like he was a, he was a trooper and that he would, he would do it. And he like, we didn't have to drag him into the hospital. We didn't hospital. have to drag him in there. But I mean, there was tears and there was fear and there was build up to it every time. And still, and it still, still it's, it's probably worse now because it's spread out. So he forgets that it wasn't as bad. He remembers the anxiety. He forgets that it wasn't a big deal. To, the poke wasn't yeah. a big deal. With the lidocaine cream, that helps a lot. But yeah, he forgets that. Because now we go back every three months. He gets um, the IV scan every six months with the CAT scans. So yeah, he, he loses that memory. But um, so yeah, he... He, he, so we missed the part where we actually told him he had cancer. Oh, yeah. Um, so we, we told us, I shouldn't say we, our urologist friend who came and told us he had cancer. I said, I don't know what to say to him. I don't know what to do. And he said, this was I, in the hospital. at Baptist, he said, I will go talk to him. I will tell him that he has a bump on his kidney and we have to figure out what it is. And I did not realize what I was asking of that man when I asked him to do that, but he went in there and he explained it and he said, this is what's going on. We're going to take you to a hospital for kids where they can take care of this and they can figure out what's going on. And so he did it in such a way that Blaze was really calm. It's really calm, but I remember he, Blaze asked you, because at this whole time we thought it was appendicitis and we told him, you know, it's probably appendicitis and go in, have, might have to have surgery and Two, three days it'll be fine and so after that conversation with our physician friend i remember him telling tammy uh, looking up and saying it's a lot worse than what we thought it was isn't it and she said yeah buddy and that's that's kind of that was kind of <clears throat> it until we, we didn't want to tell him he had cancer until we had pathology back because that kind of defines what the course of action is. So there's no point in getting him spun up until we know what's going to be. Well, and because he asks so many questions, yeah. whenever, whenever you're giving him an unknown, he wants laid out step-by-step, step, how's it going to go? And we couldn't answer those questions. The pathology was delayed and we had to go in for our roadmap conversation where it was, he was, intimately involved in that he's gonna be part of that and so our oncologist called us and said time to tell him she gave me the diagnosis that day and she said it's time to tell him. she said it's time to tell him she knew we were waiting 
And she said, it's time to tell him. I said, okay, I, I, we're going to tell him. So we told him that night when, when Jared got home from work, told him that it was cancer. And again, his only frame of reference is that his death is his, his godfather is dying from it. His, um, cousin that he never met is dying from it. His Gigi died from it. You know, all, all these people in our life have died from it. And he wailed when we told him. So we, I mean, we set him down. We kind of had a plan. Um, he was big into Ninja Turtles at the time. Oh yes. Child life helped us with this. They were awesome. Um, so set him down and just kind of said, Hey buddy, we got to talk about what's going on. So here's the deal. You have cancer and that was the bump on your kidney and it's been removed. However, um, you got some bad guys that might have floated out. And so now you have to be like the Ninja Turtles and go and kill all the bad guys. And that's called chemotherapy. And that's what we're going to have to do now. But yeah, he, I mean, he wailed, um, as Tammy said, and I, I mean, I, I can't remember. Well, so he, um, he freaked out and then Jared started telling him not every cancer is the same. They're all different. This is a good kind of cancer. If we're going to have to have cancer, this is a good kind. And he calmed down pretty quickly. And so at that point, once he calmed down, he was completely devastated as you would be. Yeah. Um, but once he found once we reassured him that, the survival rate is high. Um, it was, it, he was learning about, you know, graphs and pie charts and stuff like that. So I was able to just say, okay, here's a plate. Here's the survival rate. We're putting you in the boat by giving you chemotherapy. We're not expecting you to swim. Um, so that you have to, with a nine-year-old, you have to emphasize the survival rate and not the fact that there's this little sliver that doesn't. So um, that was reassuring to him, but we uh, got him to a point in, within that single conversation. And, and then we had to tell his brothers and we brought them in and they kind of panicked and his, he, he oh, went so in to- Five and three at the time. So three-year-old, I was kind of oblivious, but the five-year-old is a very, empathetic if you get hurt he's the first one to bring you stuff to animal and console you and takes a lot of um emotional stuff on and hides it he's a very deep well and so even at five years old telling him uh, he he was concerned but blaze was the one to say no but it's okay it's the good kind and so and then i think he retold your story about um the ninja turtles are going to go in there and fight it and because they were really into ninja turtles at the time so um so blaze blaze took it upon himself to kind of explain to his his brother what yeah. was going on yeah so then that went then we started treatment and i can't remember when did we have the head shaving party weeks after a week after i think it was so we had the roadmap conversation on maybe May 20, 21st or 22nd. And then um, he started chemo that day. Um, and then the head shaving party was maybe 
two weeks after he started chemo. I, I only remember that because um, so my best friend's son is Blaze's best friend and they live in Tennessee. And um, so I called her and she, they got all the kids and came and they were here within maybe three weeks after finding out that he had cancer. So I think it was two weeks after chemo, maybe. Ish. Tell me about the head shaving party. How, what did that look like? Um, was that emotional? I, you know, maybe not so, I wondered if it was as emotional for a boy as it would be for a girl. Um, kind of talk about, did, did friends do it with them? Just kind of walk us through a little bit of that. It, it was very, I think it was very hard for him. Um, he, our, again, our friend who was dealing with relapse really encouraged us to do that party because then he had control over when the hair left and because it's so uncomfortable to lose your hair. It's very itchy losing your hair. And um, she said it's just, and he had a lot of hair. Very thick hair. And so um, I think, yeah, I don't think he was thrilled about it. We haven't really talked about it. But um, I feel like the vibe we tried to, I mean, we had balloons, right? And cupcakes and yeah. like, we tried to make it a celebration it was fun. as it, much as possible and not an obligation. He had all kinds of friends from school and church and stuff there. Um, everybody he loved was at the party. And um, so it was, it was good for that. And then Jared um, decided that he would shave his head and he did it before Blaze did it. So that I let Blaze, Blaze cut my hair. So, you know. I'd go first and then, um, but, but then like, unbeknownst, like, well, not unbeknownst to us, but like, Blaze shaved his head and then a line formed. We didn't say anything, but a line formed of kids behind him and his grandfather and, you know, everybody kind of sat down to, we are, one of our good friends is a barber and he was the one doing it and he had uh, electronic clippers and they were running out of batteries by the time they were all done, kind of had to stop because the, the batteries were all out. But it's a very affirming, uh, party. I mean, it's a very, we're, we're here, we're celebrating this and the fight that we're going to have to go through. Yeah. And we're walking it with you. So I think that doing it that way helped a lot. So, um, to know that he wasn't alone, cause he really did not, he doesn't, he doesn't like pictures of himself bald. Um, I made it a point to make sure we had them because I never wanted him to feel like we were ashamed of that. That goes back to a story I had. Actually, um, one of my friends in college um, survived Wilms tumor as a kid. And so I reconnected with him um, as a result of Blaze's diagnosis. And then we connected with his parents and she told us a story about taking his little brother just to get his like monthly pictures at Sears or JCPenney's or something. Um, and so like, just for no other reason than that, he was like, a, his, I think it was two-year-old picture. So it was like, as a yearly, just a like, just, yeah, pictures. just because that's what you do. And so he was all dressed up and my friend was in just like a ratty jumpsuit or something. I don't know. And, um, so my friend said to his mom, he goes, I know why you're not doing pictures for me. It's because I'm ugly. And she, uh, she's like, that's it. Put him up there. We're getting pictures of him. And so um, they have pictures of his little bald head um, because 
she never wanted him to think that she was ashamed of him. So that always stuck in my mind. And so we were able to do pictures with Gold Hope Project, which is an amazing organization that provides free pictures to um, pediatric cancer patients. But he didn't, I mean, he didn't, <clears throat> he didn't talk about his hair much. I mean, I know he doesn't like it, like Tammy said, um, taking pictures when he was bald, he did not like. I remember um, we were going to church and I was in the parking lot with him and I was buttoning the cuffs on his shirt on his sleeves. And this was probably week four of treatment and his hair had grown out a little bit. Uh, it was probably about a half an inch long at that point. It grows fast. He has very fast, thick hair. And he started scratching his head and he just couldn't stop, couldn't stop, couldn't stop. And he was like, dad, why is my hair so itchy? And I looked down and on his shoulders, both of them was just covered with his hair falling out. And so here I am in the church parking lot going, well, buddy, it's because your hair is falling out. It's like, for us, like, that's the first, I mean, we'd been with him in the hospital. We knew he had surgery, but like the hair loss is like the first, you cannot not look at him now and know <clears throat> that he, he, we could fill ourselves by looking at him. He'd, he'd be playing around and, and he looked healthy, but as the hair started to fall out, it was like the first time that it was like, we can't. You can't, it's in your obviously face. this child has cancer. It's in your face all the time. And so that was really hard for me to kind of, I don't know, in a weird way, even though we'd been through so much at that point, like that's the point where it became real, what we were going through. Yeah, I forgot about that. I think we talked about that during treatment, but he, you try to escape the fact that your child has cancer and you can't because every time you look at them, you see the cancer because they lose so much weight. They lose their hair, they're pale. Um, and I have pictures of just progression of him looking worse and worse because he really looked pretty healthy. He hadn't been sick prior to that. Um, he had been pale and uncharacteristically pale. Before, so that was the kind of our only indication that something was wrong. And it was a hindsight 2020 thing is that he had been pale for a long time, but he's kind of a pale kid. We didn't think anything of it, but looking back on it. I, I wish I, it was something that nagged at me that I, but I just kept telling myself, but he's never sick, he acts just fine. So this is just my genetics coming through because I have pale skin and naturally dark circles under my eyes. So I was like, okay, well, he's got it too, a poor kid. But um, it was hindsight, like Jared said, it's 2020 and it, he does not look like that anymore. He's still fair skinned, but he looks healthy. Um, so that's kind of, something I use to gauge whether or not um, I think he's relapsed is his skin. So now he, you can tell a difference from a before picture, even before you realized there was a diagnosis there to now, and he looks different. He looks healthier than what he did prior to um, diagnosis. So tell me about the treatment. How did his body respond to that? Um, you know, I know that's one of the ugly things about childhood cancer is and that we've heard over and over reinforced for Childhood Cancer Awareness Month is the uh, medications and how hard it is on the body and how there's very few new medications. So I'm wondering if you could just share a little bit about how his body responded to the treatment that, that he went through. Yeah, he had to take two drugs, Christine and Dectomycin, <clears throat> the two drugs that he was on, the regimen that he was on. And he had to take them. Uh, weekly up to a certain point and then one of them turned into every three weeks while that one went on every week and I can't remember what it was um as far as like chemo stories go like it, it wasn't bad at all compared to other people's stories I mean he, he never got sick I mean he, he never threw up. Him, but he never threw up 
but it is this steady, like Tammy was talking about, it's the steady deterioration that you watch your child go through. I mean, he got small, he's small to begin with. He got smaller and smaller, lost weight, um, no energy. Um, and then, so like we go in for treatment on Monday by Wednesday is kind of when it peaked. And so Wednesday he had no energy. And then kind of by the weekend, he would start to feel better. And so by Saturday, Sunday, he was kind of bouncing back to what he normally was, which is very encouraging. And then we had to keep in the back of our minds that as he's ramping up, we're just going to go in on Monday and knock him back down again. Well, my perception is a little different from Jared's. Um, I felt like he didn't bounce back enough. Um, the picture painted for us was that it would, uh, that in the grand scheme of things, this was the easier treatment for kids with cancer. And so they, do fairly well with it, which in, by comparison, yes, that's true. But you don't do well with chemotherapy. He never, like he went from May 4th until weeks after he finished treatment, he was not, he did not feel like himself. And so he never got back to his baseline until after treatment. So he had moments where he did really well, um, but for the most part, those were very short-lived. He'd have a burst of energy. And then he, Blaze will tell you that he remembers me saying, are you okay? Do you have enough energy for this? Can you do it? Can you make it? Um, because we'd go out and we'd have to make sure that the walking distance wasn't too far. If it was going to be a far walking distance, then we had to make sure we had um, some way to get back easily. Usually he, we had a wheelchair, but he didn't want to use that. So, wagon and so then we used dad carrying him a lot. Yeah. So we use, we would take the wagon with us everywhere. But he, I mean, he's very weak, very depressed, um, couldn't do anything, which just kind of fed into the depression. And then that continued. I mean, I can't say through the whole treatment, but one wonderful thing that happened is that we sent him to Cabot Kids Camp, which Danny Cabot is the, uh, chaplain at Children's Hospital. He was doing it back when Tammy's cousin was there. And he puts on a camp for um, all kinds of, all, all the children, all, all the kids that have illnesses at Children's Hospital. And so Blaze went to that, which was as a parent sending your kid to camp for the first time um, as he's in treatment was terrifying. But looking back, um, he came back, he came back a completely different kid. I mean, that kind of broke the depression. It, it empowered him. I mean, Danny does a great job of, I, I forget what the theme was for that year, but um, teaching the kids to kind of take on what life has thrown at them and empowers them to do it. And I mean, he came back a completely different kid and he had so much fun there. I mean, it was, and I mean, like I said, it was nerve wracking to send him, but it's like 150 doctors and nurses per 200 children. So <laughs> the ratio was in our favor. But. Yeah, well, child life really encouraged me. I, I asked them for support for him and so I they reached back out to me and said I know this makes you really nervous but I think it'd be really good for him to go and so I sent Jared a text and I said okay so here he can go to this camp so let me know what you think and if you want to let him go and he was like what do you, what are you asking what's the decision here like he goes I don't think this is my decision I think it's his and I was like oh great okay so then we proposed it to blaze and he wanted to go and um, then he got nervous about going and uh, 
I said, I'm not making you go. You get to decide. You choose this. And he said, if I don't do it, I know I'm going to regret it. So I'm just going to power through and I'm going to do it. But so. he loved it. He loved it. So right before that, is that when we went to the ER? Was. So yeah, he had one um, really rough chemo where they couldn't get his port accessed easily. I had took about four tries and then um, so he, he ended, ended up, up with a really bad week. So he ended up having bad week, very mopey. And then we were out with some dinner with friends. We get a call. Her mom is watching him and she says he has a fever. You guys need to come back home. So the rule is with the port, that anything over it was 100.5. 100.5. You have to go to the ER and they give you a nice card to get to the front of the line, which is kind of cool. Your but, VIP pass. But, uh, which so, is one, one of the benefits. Yeah. So his temperature added up to, I think, 102. So we ended up taking him to the ER. And that trip to the ER was kind of the culmination, I think, of a lot of emotion. It just kind of came out. And I remember he, he, he didn't want to go. He knew he had to go. We had him in the back seat, and he's just wailing the whole way there. I miss the old blaze. I want the old blaze back. This is too much for a little boy. I'm just a little boy. I shouldn't have to do this. And this narrative just kind of spewing out. He kind of held on to all his emotions. He never said anything like that. So here we are on the strip of the yard, and it's just all coming out. In the back seat, there's nothing we can do. I mean, I'm having to. I'm reaching back, holding his hand hold while it together, driving so down I'm not highway. crying, driving down the road, trying to keep the tears out of my eye. But we, I mean, we ended up um, in the ER, and they um, did lab work. Uh, they gave him rosefin, an antibiotic, just to kill anything he had with him, and he ended up giving a transfusion. And so I stayed with him that night. But that that trip to the ER is one of my more vivid memories of. I think that was the peak awfulness for for me anyway. Well, yeah, because my mom, when my mom called and said he's got a fever, it's 102.5. And I said, all right, we've got to take him to the hospital. And so we headed over there and he was, I opened her front door and heard him crying. And she said, he has been like this ever since he found out he had a fever. And so he knew he knew what the number was that meant he had to go to the hospital. So, um, but he felt really bad that week because, um, his, which, what, what so was his, his hemoglobin was, so at the ER where there is hemoglobin was at a seven, which anything below a seven means transfusion. Uh, the doctor said he's at a seven, he's going to drop. So we're just going to go ahead and do it. Um, that, Pepped him up so much. It's though. amazing what a little blood does. Yeah. Like it's unbelievable. He was having oxygen actually going through your system. It turns out it's a great thing. Yeah. So he had been, so he'd been really puny all week long. And then, well, probably several weeks leading up to that, too. Yeah. I mean, we weren't even there like 16 hours before he got discharged. No. I mean, so we, I think we got there late at night. Um, I forget what day is Friday or Saturday. And we were out by, like six in the morning or something like no i think it was the afternoon and he i mean he was just but he was walking around the 10th floor eating candy playing games at that point just because he got a a bag of blood and um so which that was a i mean yeah when we got the roadmap i mean our, our physician told us like this is a high likelihood is that he'll have a transfusion during the course of, of treatment due to the medication. So it was kind of an unex there was, you don't want to do it, but it was an expected thing. But it's kind of nice that it happened right before Cavi Kids because then he had all kinds of energy at the camp and he really enjoyed himself. Well, and he ended up um, missing counts, which I don't know. Um, 
Yeah. So what had, everybody said about that, but his ANC was, I think, 700. Yeah, so and so he couldn't do chemo. So ended up being a good thing, which I was nervous about because he was going to get the bad week of chemo right before he went. Um, but the oncologist said, well, actually his ANC will be higher now because it, it would have dropped at the wrong time. He would have been at camp when it dropped and then he wasn't going to be at camp. So he wouldn't, he wasn't going to be as susceptible to infection while he was at camp. So it ended up being a really good, good timing. So, I was going to say, that sounds like really good timing on, on all of that for, for a good timing of cancer. I mean, it's like, I, I mean, I've, it's odd to have all of these, which you feel like are, I guess just what, what I would consider almost God moments, you know, that you're just like, this is, God worked it out for, you know, for us at, at that moment when we were in such despair and, and, and all that. But um, talk to me about it being a family illness um, about his brothers, uh, what's, his, what's his brother's names and how did they respond? And I know that, you know, childhood cancer is not just about the child, but it affects the entire family. And so I'm wondering how y'all made accommodations as a family uh, to, to help Blaze through all of this. Um, so he, his currently eight-year-old brother is Than. It's Nathaniel, but we call him Than for short. Um, and then there's Asher, who's currently five. And so three, three, three five. and five or six at the time. I think they just both turned three and six. And um, so the three-year-old didn't really know a whole lot of what was going on um, other than he wasn't getting all the attention that he wanted. So start having more toddler fits and things like that um, with him, but couldn't really articulate what was going on. So, but it, and fortunately we were home a lot. And so we were around him a lot. So that made it a little bit better. Um, the six-year-old at the time, it, didn't do so well. He said, and he, I brought this up with him the other day and he doesn't remember it, but at one point, you know, when, when you have cancer, you get all the presence and all the attention and your siblings don't. And so, um, he said at one point, I don't know how to get a bump on my kidney. So saying that implying, if I knew how to do that, I would, so that people would pay attention to me. Um, and so, that was tough because he wanted the attention and it was tough because Blaze seemed to, um, we all had angry moments. Myself, definitely anger was my baseline emotion and Blaze as well, but you turn it towards different things. Blaze turned his anger toward fan. Um, and I think it was a matter of Dan was old enough that he could go out and he could play and he could be healthy. And Blaze could see that Dan was what he wanted to be, what he used to be. And that was a hard pill to swallow for him. That's my assumption. I don't know if in uh, 20 years, Blaze will say that or not. Um, but it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's such a, there's such a wrench in the family dynamic because here you have a child that is going through hell and you're as as parents are in survival mode and so 
you know, our parenting as far as like discipline and stuff like that got very lax and I mean, doing crazy stuff like Blaze, um, we're kind of on a, in, a, in a period where like any calories are good calories. So whatever, if you want ice cream for dinner, eat ice cream for dinner because you're losing weight. We got to keep it on you. We ate, I don't know how many Brahms cheeseburgers because that was the only thing that you wanted at the time. And so it's just kind of this accommodate, 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 accommodate. And our treatment plan was only a little bit less than six months. And so, you know, you're just trying to figure all this out for the first for three, the first six four months. months. So and I think so you're trying you're, to figure it out. We never really got our feet underneath us as far as, you know, what this feels like and 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 what it is enough to um kind of be better parents to that whole dynamic so i mean that that was a big struggle and looking back on it i mean like you know we were kind of in a situation where blaze got everything he wanted his brothers got neglected now because blaze didn't have any energy we we're spending a lot of time at home like tammy was saying but you know it wasn't quality time and then coming back out of that has been really hard because you've been lax parents for six months just trying to survive yourself and so then the behavioral issues that you have to work through after um and you know coming back and being all right now we're actually engaged parents and discipline and that kind of stuff and, and not just chaos and anarchy all the time i mean that's kind of been a big struggle that i wasn't prepared for at all um going into this yeah i think um we we uh, my mom's a therapist so we're pro therapy family um so we had Blaze and our family in therapy during treatment um, and after. And it was something that we talked with the therapist about. And he said, it's okay to have a capacity and to be at capacity, it will be okay. And so that was really nice for me to have the permission to kind of let things go, let discipline slide. I mean, we didn't it wasn't a free for all. I don't want to give that impression, but um, things that would typically get them in trouble didn't get them in trouble anymore. You want ice cream? We'll all have ice cream for dinner. Yeah, I mean, they, they went six months without cleaning the room, which would be, you know, doing laundry, that kind of stuff is just, just survival mode. So some stuff just falls. Yeah. And so um, you have to have a lot of grace with yourself um, and it, that's okay. It's, and you'll come out of it. And so um, after that, and we were having so many discipline issues after the fact, talking to the therapist, he said, I think it's going to be a good year before you see a difference. And we are at the point now where I feel like we're finally starting to regain some. Yeah. Control. I mean, like, so for us, I mean, like Blaze's treatment, it ended in October, 2019. So like, we're kind of coming out of this self-imposed quarantine at that point, like all evil had been inside of our house at that point. And so there's a weird dynamic that salvation for us I keep using that word a lot but you know those moments for us where we could get out and do something and distract ourselves were the moments where he came to life and just, but he didn't have enough energy so like the home was kind of this kind of dark place of the depression for for him and for us and just kind of moping around but going out was like life-giving life-giving and then so come october we're ready to you know it's a it, we're ready to party let's go do this and then shortly thereafter you then have going to covid and so then the evil's outside the house and inside the house is safe um so i mean that that's been a very strange dynamic so yeah i think that kind of goes to what tammy was saying about you know that year we're kind of just getting to that point because once we're done with cancer all of a sudden we're getting to covid and now we're just kind of getting our you know feet underneath us from the last two years so that's been a strange twist to the whole narrative so. yeah 
Yeah, that's uh, COVID, throwing COVID in there is is a whole nother ball game when it comes to that for sure. Yeah, talk to me about the supports that you guys sought out, um, and then maybe surprise supports that you didn't even realize were out there uh, that were were there for you guys. Um, first and foremost, our church. Um, yeah. They carried us through a lot. They carried us through a lot. I mean, as far as organization goes, having kids was kind of the organization that helped us out a lot because it let us know that we weren't alone as a family. We were kind of going through this stuff together. Um, An emotional support for Blaze, that that was the huge thing. Um, I-9 Sports was a surprising um, Blaze had been... He was supposed to start flag, flag football. football and, and we had a call and say, can't do it and they did a huge fundraiser for him yeah they um they did the owner uh dustin called me and said or emailed me or something and said you know we yes i asked for a refund or for credit for a future and he said absolutely i'm going to go ahead and give you a refund now because i think you need the money in your pocket more than you need a credit later um and i'd like to go ahead and do a fundraiser if you're okay with that so um he did that um they raised money for us so that was a huge surprise um I think those were the major during treatment well but then like the nursing staff the doctors were phenomenal child life I mean I can't say enough good things about child life at the hospital there I mean they were they were miracle workers for us and our family and and guiding us down this emotional turbulent path and providing us direction I mean I can't say enough good things about that uh, kind of the, the most surprising one in my mind is so we moved into our current neighborhood in August of 2018. So Blaze got sick in May of 2019. So we're just starting to get to know our neighbors. And our neighbors stepped up in a way that I was not expecting and has made them lifelong friends. Like, <clears throat> I mean, they, they provided us financially they provided us food they came in cleaned our house they they did all they took care of the, the younger bro- I mean, the yeah, younger boys took care of the boys um i mean that was i mean it's, there are some of they have become because of this and maybe it would have happened but i think it would have happened on a much slower at a much slower rate but because of this stepped in and have become some of just our most cherished friends um, and their, their kids are similar in age to our kids. So it's just, it's not just one it's a couple families on the block. There's three families on the block in particular that, that stepped up in ways that were just totally unexpected. You're kind of surprised by who doesn't step up and then surprised by some of these people that do step up. And they were definitely the ones that had very little investment. We just moved in. They didn't know us. And these families are stepping up and just they, making sure that your kids are um, taken care of. And then Blaze had a good friend at school who um, his grandmother actually was Blaze's nurse at the pediatrician's office. We made that connection after all of, like later, I don't know exactly when, but um, this kid was, he's just a phenomenal kid and very different from Blaze. He's um, just very outgoing and very different, but just salt of the earth and his entire family, his parents are the same way. So um, 
just again like that was one of those things where we we had moved into this neighborhood a new school and those people showed up in ways that just were shocking and they um don't have any clue how much you you need that yeah, when I mean, you're going through it yeah you're going through hell and you feel very alone as you're going through it um part of that i didn't know anybody who had a child with cancer i mean tammy's story is a little bit different but i i didn't know anybody and you know it's one of those things that people come always out and ask you know how can i help how can i help and you you don't know you don't know what you you, you don't even know which way is up but they made you feel loved and loved at a critical point when you needed to feel loved and, and heard and seen yeah and that uh, means the world when you're going through something like that and then again um jared's company uh they provided the switch um, provided monetarily, they donated their um, paid time off to Jared, so he never ran out of um, leave. He was able to be at every appointment, um, thanks to them. And they, I think, the first day he showed up after um, Blaze's surgery, he walked in, and one of them was like, "Why are you here? Yeah, Go my, home. My you have important like, things. Why are you here? Go home." Yes, but I knew the distraction was kind of part of us there, but yeah. So. so we don't, I mean, I think we're really fortunate because not everybody has that kind of support system um, and we had to, I mean, that's our insurance. So they, they um, provided the money that we needed to, for his treatment and were so understanding and never made him feel bad for missing work to go to treatments. Um, and that's, I think, hard to come by. So um all of those things. I mean, I call There's those more that we can't even think of. I call those my bright spot moments. Um, I have just several that I hold very dear to me. Um, uh, our youth director's girlfriend worked at the hospital or works there still. And she showed up, didn't, I mean, we knew her, but we didn't know her well. Um, and she showed up when Blaze was in the hospital and I, she walked in the first time and I said we have to go meet with the doctor can you please sit with Blaze and she sat in there for an hour or something I can't remember we just completely abandoned her and she's become a dear friend to us through all of that along with um her now fiance the youth director at the church um yeah we didn't know him very well at all because Blaze was too young for youth group but I mean here he is he showed up with his switch and they played Mario Kart for hours and he entertained him and I mean it, it, so it's those moments that really stick out in my mind yeah so. yeah and that's actually seems to be a recurring theme of, of what you said Jared about um about you're surprised by some of the people who weren't there and then you are embraced by people that you were, are strangers with and you don't even know sometimes well and so you know kind of thinking of that web of support and was there peer support that really jumps out at you I mean because now you guys are offering that same kind of support that maybe are you offering that support now to other families because you kind of missed out on some of that and you want to be that support or was it a situation where that was offered to you and you just really embraced that I think for me um and I was talking to Blaze doesn't love to talk about this um we talk about his pediatrician we'll talk about he needs to be able to get in the room with the problem um so we have to 
kind of exposure therapy for him. Um, and so he doesn't like it when we talk about it, but I told him tonight, this is what we're doing. We're going to talk about it. And the reason I've come to realize that I want to talk about it is because we are the story that I was looking for. We are the best case scenario out of a worst case situation. And people who have just received that diagnosis are looking for our story to be able to survive. And so that's why we share our story. That's why um, we're involved with OFN. That's why we're involved with Cabot Kids and K-Club. And um, we have a mom's group on Facebook that I started because I was desperately searching um, for any kind of support from people who knew what I was walking through, who were walking through the same thing. Um, and I needed it locally. And I didn't need to just go on Facebook and find out about all of the worst case scenarios because that's typically what you're finding. So I decided that we would start, well, actually I started it because I had met several moms and we were communicating via Facebook Messenger and there got to be too many. So I said, well, I'm just gonna make a group. And then that group has become over 60 moms who, um, have just heard word of mouth. So, um, what is it? Um, OKC JEC Moms um, is our Facebook page. And we are, uh, I did it with, um, you know, a few other moms. And um, I have one other mom who um, helps me admin the page just because we, I mean, these people, whether you see them regularly or socialize with them, they're your people. Um, and you may not have ever run into them outside of this diagnosis, but they become your dearest friends and they're the people who you can call and say, we're concerned, we're afraid, you know what this feels like. Every negative or happy emotion that nobody else understands, they understand it. And so, um, it, it's really important because I, I knew about some organizations because of my cousin, um, but they were kind of hard to come by um, whenever it was Blaze. And so um, Child Life, I think, has been a huge help for us in locating those organizations and then just continuing with the moms to grow it so that nobody else feels alone whenever they're faced with the diagnosis. So like, I mean, <clears throat> like Tammy kind of said, we met some people, you get that diagnosis, you kind of hear about other people and you make some connections. So those things were there, but dads are a little bit different. So dads don't like to share their feelings and dads don't network the way that the moms do. And so, you know, I felt, you know, there were some of those connections, but there are a few and far between uh, for me. I think for me, like, uh, you know, it's, it's what do you do with suffering? What is the purpose of suffering? What does it mean for us? Why does it exist? I mean, something that keeps philosophers and theologians busy for a while kind of discussing, but out of, to, to make it, to make it so you can get through suffering, you have to have meaning associated with it. And so for me, like cultivating connections, the parent support group that 
you know, we're running, it, it provides the meaning for what we went through. And the meaning is now, um, you know, the story of, there's a story that, you know, a, a guy's walking down the street and he falls into a hole and he can't get out of the hole. The, the walls are too steep. And so, you know, he's calling for help and a physician walks by the hole and he says, hey, doc, can you get me out of here? And the doctor writes a prescription and throws it in there. And um, so great now he's got a prescription in the hole and he still can't get out. And then he sees the priest walk by and he says, hey, priest, can you get me out of this hole? And the priest says a prayer for him and he's still stuck in the hole, can't get out. And then he says his friend, he says, hey, Joe, I'm stuck in this hole, can you get me out? And all of a sudden, Joe jumps in the hole and he says, Joe, what are you doing? Now we're both in this hole. And Joe says, yes, but I've been in this hole before. I know the way out. And so that's the meaning that can come out of this with cultivating connections or whatever. Just letting people know that we're not alone, that you're not alone in the story. You know, I've said before, I cultivating connections, kind of the, the narrative is, you know, um, you know, there's a mythological substructure to what we're going through. There's been a call to action. Unfortunately, it's our child's call to action. It's not ours. So in a lot of ways, I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm not a big Lord of the Rings guy, so I'm probably going to butcher this analogy. But, you know, our child is Fredo. The quest has been thrust on him. We're the cast of characters around him. The, the Samwise Game G and the other people's names I can mm -hmm. think of now. Our, our quest now for them is to, is to help our child to help Fredo on his quest. It's not our quest. Um, you wish it was your quest. You wish you were going through it, but it's not yours. So all you can do is help him get through the journey that he has to go through. And on the way you meet these, you know, wizards that provide you potions that poison your child, that hopefully kill him or kill the cancer. And, you know, that's the quest. And it's this, it's this you know, you dropping down into death I mean, it's, you, you, your child is confronted with that. Uh, and some people, that death is more real than others, um, unfortunately. Uh, but that's the quest, and, and you hope there's salvation on the other side. And so that's what, you know, being involved in cultivating connections means to me, is that maybe maybe that is the, the salvation at the end of it, is and the meaning behind the suffering is that now we can help people that are going through the same thing. I think at, least let, at least let them know. You know, all of our all of our stories are the same and that they have that same kind of call to action and, and we're helping our child through it and meeting the dragons and the wizards in the unknown land and unknown territory and we're having to confront this chaos that we don't know what it is and, and, and how how to act in that. Um, and maybe this is the meaning that makes sense of it all. But um, you know, in that we have that same story, but yet all of our stories are very different. And so they're the same until they're different. Um, but that's a place where we can come and kind of, we know what each other's going through to the extent that we do. Um, and those are your people because they're the only ones that know what you're going through. I mean, there's not too many people, thank God, that know what it's like to have a child go through cancer, but those people do. And it's only, you know, you can say stuff to them that you can't say to your friends or your family because they just don't know. I mean, there's a lot of really, um, twisted, what I shouldn't, they appear to the outside world as twisted thoughts and dark thoughts. And you Devil's say it, and... you say it to, um, to a fellow cancer parent and there's no explanation needed. 
um, they get it right off the bat. You know, there's no apology necessary. They just get it. And, um, and those are things that you can't say to your closest friends sometimes. Um, and it's not, it's not your friend's fault. It, like they could be the most supportive people, um, but they just don't understand it. And so we need those people to have our twisted humor with and um, our dark moments. We, we need them. And I think um, it is such a horrible diagnosis and you don't want it to be for nothing. We, Jared and I believe and, and teach our children to believe that everything in life is for our salvation. And so I remember when I announced on Facebook that he had cancer, I did not want to hear um, from people that they were believing for his, for his healing. Well, what if God chooses not to heal him? Does that make God less God? Does that mean he loves Blaze less? Does that mean he loves me and Jared less if he chooses to take Blaze? No, it doesn't mean that. So I, I want to live my life like it is for my salvation, and no matter the outcome, be it unto me for my salvation. And so I don't think that this was a blip in the road for us. I know it wasn't. Um, I know it continues, and I know I know it continues to save Blaze. I know it continues to save us, and it will for the rest of our lives. And you know, reaching out to people and sharing that story um, hopefully brings salvation to them um, in their darkest hours. So that's our goal, and I I. I hope it helps somebody. Or maybe we're just making a huge mess. Who knows? <laughs> it's entirely possible. <laughs> I, 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 holding on to his goodness, regardless of circumstances and outcomes, is yeah. one of the hardest things that we do in this life. And so just, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I did tell Blaze at one point um, during treatment, I said, you know, it's okay to be mad. And if you're mad at God, that's okay. And he looked at me and he was like, why would I be mad at God? he didn't do this to me. And I was like, all right, that's my boy. Stick with that. Hold on to that. Don't let go of it. So, um, this is life. This is life in a broken world and, um, just cling to, cling to God that he has your best interest at heart, no matter if that means that we're devastated. Um, it's, it's for our good ultimately. So, uh, tell me about his bell ringing. Did he participate in that? Was that something he wanted to do? Did he look forward to it? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge capstone event and the journey kind of marks the culmination of it. So um, we got like superhero masks with superhero themes. So he had, they all had capes. So him and um, he had a bunch of friends, his brothers were there, grandparents, everybody was there. His um, godfather who has since passed and then several um some fellow cancer patients um pediatric cancer patients yeah, so we're going through it that we've met along the way so i mean we had cupcakes um we had all that he's a pretty introverted shy kid uh, so they threw him up there on that ladder and um he just kind of ding ding ding, ding 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 but then we're like no you got to ring it and he <laughs> cranked that bell 
And then, you know, the nurses sing a song for him and he was standing on the ladder, big old smile on his face and he's taking a bow in front yeah, of everybody. Started he started, I mean, really got a, a kick out of it. But I mean, it's such a, such a wonderful moment and, you know, that celebratory moment of it's, it's, it's over for, I mean, hopefully it's over for us. I don't know that's ever over, over, but it's that part of the journey is over and we can move on to the next chapter. Yeah, so he he was excited and he did enjoy that. Um, I think I don't know exactly for Jared, but for me, um, you kind of go through everything numb. Well, I I did, and so to me it was kind of anticlimactic. I think, um, and so a friend, our friend who had already rung her bell, she goes, Tammy, it has to happen, whether it's anticlimactic for you. Like he says that it's a capstone, you know, it has to happen. This is part of the journey and it's a closing of one chapter and an opening of the next. So um, I had friends there who I watched feel all the feelings for me while I just kind of stood back and observed. And, and then I've gotten to go and feel their feelings with them and for myself. Um, but also, their celebrations. like, I mean, it was a, it was a hard time because like, as the capstone of one chapter, the chemotherapy is done, but now you're not on the offensive anymore. At least within your chemotherapy, you're doing something, um, poisoning your child, but you're doing something, you're, you're fighting it. Um, after the bell ringing, you're waiting and you're hoping it doesn't come back. And for us, like I said before, we have to go back every three months to get scans. It's so, I mean, I wasn't numb to it, but like, it was the unsettling reality of, we're celebrating it being over, but it's not over. And now to add to that, now we're not doing anything about it. So what are we doing? I mean, that's kind of my feeling of, you know. There's a sick reassurance with giving your child poison every week. You're doing something. I mean, you have so little control in these situations. I mean, you have little control in life as it turns out, but you have so little control in these situations that, but at least with chemotherapy, you're doing something. You're moving in a direction, you're doing something. Um, and so, I mean, it was a great moment for him, great moment to turn the page in the chapter, but that's all you're doing. The story's not over. And so as much as you want to be happy as a parent, you're also sitting there going, um, as happy as I am, it is equally terrifying, if not more terrifying. And now we're not doing anything and we just have to wait. And hopefully in three months we get good news, but you know, he, he has a high likelihood of success with this. His, he, he has like a 95% chance or 90, 90, 95% chance of, of not relapsing. And, but you only have a 1% chance of getting cancer as a child anyway. So his odds, you know, what do numbers mean at that point? Mm -hmm. What does 90, 95% mean at that point? You're transitioning into that moment. It's like, these numbers are not reassuring because he shouldn't have been here in the first place. Well, and then not only that, but he's the, the second generation in my family to have pediatric cancer. So this is not something that... Yeah, he's beat the statistics too much here to be reassured by. Well, that. and then he, he got a cancer that was 4% of pediatric it. cancers too. He's so, too old for it. So, I mean... Statistics aren't always really reassuring to us because we tend to hit the bad ones. <laughs> Feels like. All right. I heard somebody say once that a statistic is only a statistic if you're not part of it. Yeah, <laughs> if you're in the good group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
So, so yeah, I've held on to that one for a long time. <laughs> well, and I think um, as far as the bell ringing goes, people think when that happens, okay, you're done, you're good to go. And what I think that outside world, and I hope that's not an insulting term, um, but it, it does become an outside world. Um, <sighs> doesn't realize is that this never goes away for us. So yes, like we said, it's the end of that chapter and it's the beginning of a next, it's not over. Yeah, but also like Tammy has a great analogy of, um, you know, you were in a shipwreck. We spent six months in a shipwreck trying to find the island. And so now you're, you're out of that and now you're trying to figure out what's left. You're trying to find life outside of what, that. What remains? I mean, you've dropped so much in that time as far as, you know, simple things like chores and, you know, keep upkeeping with your house. And so, and then like we talked about earlier, like being a good parent and engaged and that kind of stuff. And, and so you're just at that point, you're, you're emerging on this island in this unknown territory trying to figure out what you have from your previous life anymore because you've lost everything at at that or it feels like you've lost everything at that point so disorienting a time to to navigate the status the the post-treatment life for well, us because but, but ours was so quick like i mean i think some people that have like all I, I don't know if if their journey is any different because it's just longer but for us it was like just as soon as we get our feet underneath us it, the chapter changes again the bell ringing is over and now you're you're left with um what the future holds and so it's i don't know different story for everybody well, and, and we go back, back to, you know, peer support and then how re relationships are affected negatively. You come out of this and your relationships, you've had to say no to people so much and people can only take no so many times. And it's not that they're, that they're mean or unkind or whatever, but they've carried on, their relationships have grown while you've been stuck here. And so that is a really hard side effect of going through treatment um, and through the diagnosis is that, you know, it's like, okay, well, I'm ready to get back into the land of the living, but you guys have moved on without us. Yeah. And that, that's tough. Yeah, it's just emerging from this nightmare and trying to figure out what what was left from your previous life. It, I mean, it feels like on this side of it, I mean, certainly, and, and we had COVID in between there too, so it's a little bit different, but like at, in this moment, I mean, it feels like a previous life. It doesn't even feel real. The time before cancer just seems like a distant memory. I mean. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and it, with COVID, it was, everybody was kind of freaking out in the beginning and we're like, oh, this is just what we've been doing. <laughs> I mean, we're kind of prepared yeah, for this. Isolated. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> yeah, well, and it, it's kind of, it was easier for us in the beginning, in the beginning, I should say, um, not the whole time, but in the beginning, it was like, oh, well, now we're all isolated separately, but together. We've been isolated separately by ourselves. So now, like, there was a weird support that we felt because everybody else was going through it, too. Um unlike cancer. So it was, it's strange to, to go through that. Y'all have been so fantastic and I appreciate y'all sticking with me for this long. I, I'm curious to know, we'll kind of wrap it up now, but I'm curious to know what your hopes 
hopes and dreams are, you know, as we approach Childhood Cancer Awareness Month and, um, and maybe your participation in it and what you want to share with others as you share about cancer, Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. Well, the biggest thing is cultivating connections. So I want everybody to join that group and participate in it. Shameless plug. Shameless plug there. And JEC Oh, OKC okay, JEC Moms. There you go. Um, I think my perspective is probably pretty different from a lot of pediatric cancer parents. Um, Blaze's treatment for Wilms tumor was pretty tried and true, and it is extremely effective. And so um, I don't, while it's terrible, and ultimately I hope that there are treatments that aren't as brutal, at the same time, it gives me anxiety to try anything different because the, the treatment for Wilms is so successful. So um, I don't want people to get cancer, but again, we live in a broken world and I think that people are going to get cancer. I don't, um, I would love to see research continue and to improve and um, things to change and life-saving medicines to be brought out or treatments, whatever those are. Um, but I think we're probably a long way off from that. In the meantime, I want people to, I think, look at the signs. If you think your child looks pale and you're pushing down that instinct, don't push it down. I know that our pediatrician would have listened to me. He always listens to me, but I never told him. Um, I think I could have gone in there and I don't know what he could have found because Wilms isn't um, recognized in, in the blood. So, um, but I still would have been proactive. So, um, and there are plenty of cancers that you can find in a blood test. So, um, the earlier the detection, the better. So listen to that small nagging voice um, and don't be afraid to be the crazy parent. Find a doctor who listens to you. Um, don't be the crazy parent all the time <laughs> because they won't listen to you if you are. Um, but if you just tell them, listen, there's something wrong. I know there's something wrong. And just don't stop until you get answers that work. Um, so if that is that they're tired all the time, if that's, if they're pale, if that's, if they're having a lot of fevers, listen to those things. Um, because the earlier that we can detect it in kids, the better their chance of survival. And I, I mean, I freaked out about our youngest kid having strep throat too many times and made the doctor do all this stuff and he did it happily for me and that's um and I'm satisfied with the results he's fine he's healthy he just had strep a lot um but I am I don't regret that I pushed for that because what if it was something more and I hadn't listened to that nagging voice so I think that's my big thing during Childhood Cancer Awareness Month is just to 
be proactive, don't be afraid, look for support, support the organizations that, um, that are helping these families cope, no matter if that's monetarily, like they're providing monetarily um, for the families or if it's emotional or if it's research. If you feel led to give to something like that, I mean, it's always been near and dear to my heart because of my cousin. And I know that it's not like that for everybody, but if it's near and dear to your heart, find an organization that you can support and, and give them money because that's, that is, um, or, or time, because that's what keeps our families afloat during all of this. Yeah. So I'd just say, um, you know, we all want more funding for pediatric cancer. We'd like to make it a distant memory. Uh, fortunately, as Tammy said, our 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 treatment plan is um, very well known, very well researched, and so and a, a great prognosis. But you know, there's there's all kinds of people out there struggling with different forms of cancer, and they all need funding and research and and awareness to them. But you know, as people turn uh, in childhood cancer awareness month, as people turn all their profiles gold for for that. Uh, just remember to all the parents out there kind of as i talked about before you're not alone we all share the same story um it's different for all of us but it's the same story for all of us at the same time and so yeah just more than anything else you're not alone we have friends who will now um turn their profile gold for us like and that's all i mean we just see it pop up and they never did it before and we see people <laughs> and we appreciate it and that's meaningful to you Yes, yes, it is, yes. because it's, it is um, saying you're not alone. I am very much not a fan of just changing your profile picture, but when our dearest friends do it because they love us and because it now matters to them, um, it just provides emotional support to us. It doesn't do anything for anybody but us, and it is invaluable to us. I love it. If people wanted to find you guys and reach out and be a part of your online support that you guys are doing, where would they go and, and who do they need to ask and, and what would they look for? So um, Oklahoma Family Network, reach out to them and they will connect you and help get you registered with the support group. Um, Child Life at Jimmy Everest um, and also Inpatient 10th Floor has all of our information. Our family has signed a release with Jimmy Everest to um, hand out our information, our personal information that goes, that is in effect until Blaze turns 18. Um, so you can find us by saying, hey, those people, um, the Coxes, we, we would like to get in touch with them. Um, Two Facebook pages. Uh, so you can find Cultivating Connections on Facebook, um, and I can't remember, it's Hematology Oncology is somewhere in the title, and then the OKC JEC Moms Group, um, you can find us through there and uh, private message us on Facebook too. As we wrap up, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing Blaze with us. Um, please thank him on behalf of, of families that, you know, need that encouragement and that word of hope, you know, because he is hope for a lot of families right now that are experiencing something like this. And so 
uh, please send him my love and support and, and thanks for allowing, allowing you to share his story. Thank you so much for allowing us to, to share his story on here. We really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions, advocate for improved services, build connections among families, and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at oklahomafamilynetwork.org or by calling 405-271-5072.